You're listening to the Hammer Horror Podcast. Taste the blood of Dracula. Hello, welcome to the Hammer Horror Podcast. Uh, Today we'll be talking about the fifth installment, Taste the Blood of Dracula. For those of you that are new to this podcast, essentially uh, this was set up to look and review the nine films that Hammer Productions produced, carrying the Dracula name. Uh, So as I said, I'm here to talk about the fifth installment and I'm accompanied by a new, new podcaster, Meredith Murphy. Hello, Meredith. Hello. So we'll get to you in a mo. Just quickly want to talk about uh, where we left off in the last of the instalments, which was uh, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. It's been two years since that movie was released, so they're still churning them out like there's no tomorrow. Um, not a lot really, um, should I say, the, the forefront of uh, standout movies between that movie and this one. However, there was a uh, Frankenstein instalment, another one, called Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and a little lesser-known movie called Moon Zero Two, um, which should kind of swiftly bring us up to date. But, um, Meredith, you're uh, new to the uh, Hammer Horror podcast. Welcome on board. It's well, good to have you. you. Um, quickly, just want to ask, uh, so just so our listeners are across, where you stand when it comes to Hammer? Are you aware of Hammer? Or oh, my position the on the Hammer, the, the, the wonderful world of Hammer. Um, I am a baby Hammerite, I guess you could say. Yep. Um, this was my first foray into Hammer films. Yes. So I'd heard of the company before, I knew a little bit about it, it's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, in the deep, dark depths of the subconscious, sure. there was some knowledge of Hammer, but I'd never seen an entire film all the way through. Cool. Well, that's great. That gives that gives us a, a, a good insight as to where you're going to be coming from pre-watching this movie, um, and um, we'll get to see your take on it at the end. Uh-oh. So without... <laughs> oh, indeed. Without further ado, let's let's crash on with the plot because that's essentially what we do. We talk about what happens in the movie, and um, with um, feel free to interject along the way and okay. discuss certain points, and then uh, we'll talk about the, uh, the the rest of the little nitty gritty towards the end. So essentially, we we get the uh, opening shot, which is their atypical kind of horse-drawn carriage uh, being taken through the forest, which has just become quite synonymous within um, Hammer movies. Um, but we're in- introduced almost straight away to a character called Weller, played by Roy Kinnear. Who, I'm going to interject already, I, yeah. was Veruca Salt's dad. I know, yeah. I know. How cool. <laughs> so that, that, was, a, that was a good beginning. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah well done. No, that's good. It's you, a good you beginning. Know, you know you're Roy Kinnear, that's good. <laughs> it's important, it's important. But yes, Mr. Glutton in the in oh, the carriage. Yeah, yeah, that's it. No, he's been in uh, num- numerous movies, which we'll discuss towards the end of the the podcast itself. But um, yeah, it's he's tends to be bit of comic relief and he's no exception at this point in the movie um we are introduced to him as um, as i said the character weller who is a bit of a willy dealer type provides a little bit of comic relief and um he's instantly thrown out of the carriage after apparently upsetting his occupants and when he wakes darkness has already fallen and he wanders through this forest aimlessly uh, upon where he hears death-defying screams and then stumbles to the ground and sees dracula pierced by the golden cross from the previous movie Dracula's Risen from the Grave so um, those that have been following uh, the movie chronologically you would probably get this those that haven't would probably think it's rather random of which it is it's not what you really expect a little ramble through the 
the forest yeah. and oh, so, it's Dracula. Yeah, I guess you have to be a, a follower of the movie to kind of really understand that point. But anyway, look, we're seeing Dracula in his demise, um, and he disintegrates, turns to dust, and all blah blah blah. Um, Weller wanders over to where the Dracula's corpse used to lie, finds Dracula's cape, um, this amulet thing, and um, a lot of Dracula blood, which looks like red dust. It, yes, it was a very interesting special effect. Yeah. The blood effects in this film in general. Uh, it's very uh, atypical of Hammer anyway, lots of red paint um, used as blood. Um, it's at a time where colour was paramount, so they just used mm. anything they could to enrich the red. That, that sort of adds to its charm, yeah. though, I thought. Uh, yeah. that, um, Agreed. You know, it's, it's gothic horror. It's, it is it's, gothic it's, horror. It's its own universe. It's not supposed to be reality. No, it's not supposed to right. be, you know, real gore. I think no, that's right. off with yeah. a sort of comic like relief. factor. Yeah, element yeah. to yeah. it. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Um, so then Weller says the immortal lines, Dracula, Dracula's blood. And the credits roll. So we're already into it. So, yep, we're basically um, picking up from where we last left off. Uh, within the movie canon. And that was quite the theme. I did a little bit of Wikipedia research, mm-hmm. as one does. Yep. And um, it did mention how there was always these creative ways of resurrecting Dracula or killing off Dracula. Yeah. There always had to be some this, sort of, often a little bit of a stretch of how yes. do we bring him back. Absolutely. Like the beginning of the last one was uh, so Dracula's Risen from the Grave, which Miles and I spoke about in the last podcast. For me, it was a bit weak. Uh, he was essentially frozen in ice, and a priest falls over, cracks his head open, cracks the ice, and the blood seeps through to Dracula. And that sounds cool. Yeah, but okay. it's not. And maybe it's cool. a, a little bit. It's a bit weak. Um, but yeah, like that point of case, and we'll, we'll get to that in particular with this movie, and, and we'll talk about resurrection and demise when we get there. Um, so essentially we uh, are already thrown into the next scene where uh, the main players are filing out of some church service so there are good godly Christian yes, people. Yes, it was very sort of little women yes. or, or some Jane Austen That's right. movie beginning. The, yes, yes. the young courting couples. All correct and, and above good order. And We bear witness to the characters Alice and Paul who are evidently in love but are restrained by the adults in their lives. And back at the house, we see Alice's father, uh, William Hargood, who demands that she apologise for her appalling behaviour at the church with her smiling and flirting with Paul, and he banishes her to her room. William Hargood, he's a bit of a twat, really. Yes, um, I think. And it's established quite early on that he is one. It sums it up nicely yeah. in a nutshell, and then as yeah. he sort of goes off in a strop before doing his um, uh, oh, charitable is, works yeah, in the East End, yeah, with yeah. inverted commas. Yes, brilliant. Um, so anyway, so we then we cut, cut to um, that straight away with William Hargood meeting up with uh, Samuel Paxton, who is Paul's father, and Jonathan Seeker, where the three of them venture into a bawdy, rowdy part of London to seek their kicks. Um, at which stage they are led into a back room filled with semi-clad women and a camp figure called Felix, who declares that their entertainment will be filled with the wildest of entertainment with more semi-clad women and a snake dancer. Because, you that's, know, that's just to be general... exotic, you yeah, need a snake it. dancer. Exactly. It's, it's my Friday night, I don't know about you. Well, obviously, yeah, it's, like, what, it's kind of, what we all do. I, I do order snake dancers are us and um, get, get them to crumpets, personal, well, personal snake dancers to come around my, to my house. So, yep, uh, do a bit of a dance. Yeah, well, sometimes you want to entertain your guests. What are you going to do? Oh, snake, snake dancer. dancer. Perfect. And also champagne with... What does he spike that champagne? I'm not sure. Okay, it's all because this caused yeah. a lot of debate in the Murphy house. Oh, really? Last night. 
about what it was. What is it? I don't think it's meant to be anything in particular, is it? It's the whole concept of this scene is that these are elderly men, elderly Victorian men, who are bored with their day-to-day life and are seeking any form of uh, entertainment or kicks to enlighten their miserable lives. I think they're the men that these days we'd see driving around in sort of very overpriced sports cars, usually with some sort of comb-over or... Yeah. You know, young girlfriend on their arm That's type right. of thing. It's yeah, yeah. the classic midlife crisis. It, it is classic midlife crisis set in the Victorian era. But it is an amazing, amazing bit of, you know, the, the good old patriarchal double standards yes. that, you know, Mr. Blasphemy won't get you anywhere or whatever the That's line right. is he preaches to the daughter and then it's, you know, the God-fearing people straight to the brothel. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where they belong. Exactly. And it, this is exactly the premise of the movie, which we'll, we'll get to. I mean, it, these are three guys who are living um, uh, double lives, so to speak. And um, what price does that take? Mm. And how Quite far will they go to get it? So anyway, we uh, so yeah, there's lots of uh, this um, debauchery going on. And then we cut to the entrance of Ralph Bates, who plays Lord Courtley. The very dishy Ralph Bates. Oh, you like Ralph Bates? Said. Yep, yep. I'm You've a big a fan, fan of Ralph Bates too. Actually, yeah, he's a he was a bit of a bit of a dishy Sweeney guy. He was, um, and we'll get to talk to, about him a bit later on. But he became quite um, interconnected with Harry in the, in the later years, um, taking on the mantle of villain slash cad. Now. You would know the answer to this. I hope so. But I read somewhere that he, for a while, was in the running to be Dracula in this film. Yeah, yeah. Like, we'll talk. I'd love to talk about that later, later down the track. But yes, we will. So stay listening because um, I'll, I'll let you know what that's to do with. But um, yeah, lovely little tantalising little tidbit there to keep you posted with. So yeah, no, he's he barges in and. Um, before uh, settling into the room where the three men are, and he whisks one of them away with him in a very cat-like fashion. Yeah, it was impressive. He just clicks his fingers and, yeah. you know... The women the come back to their call. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So, um, yeah, so this is obviously uh, impedes the other three men's interest a bit as to who this person is. Um, and uh, they get a bit disgruntled and want to know what he's all about. Felix, who's the uh, uh, the MC kind of character who um, oh, is a pimp for a better word, mm. um, declares that uh, this Lord Courtly chap is in, da- in, fi- in fact possessed by the devil. And this only intrigues the three men further. Who is this guy? We want to know more about him. Of which they invite him to supper uh, with a proposition. And Courtly at supper asked if they would be willing to sell their souls to the devil. You know, standard supper yeah, conversation. Exactly, yes. just a bit of tea and crumpets, sell your soul to the devil. Exactly, yeah, you know, good. it's 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 logical. It's all it's all about logic. The hammer, the, the, the hammer, the hammer logic. Yeah, there we go. That's probably a, a thesis in itself. Right to us. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, anyway, so okay, so we're cut. So we're kind of getting the idea of what this, you know, what these three men are about. They're, they're kind of wanting to push their kicks as far as they can go. We cut to the scene where um, our two lovers are declaring their feelings for one another. Paul, at this stage, he states that he has the money to go into business for for himself, and he asks Alice to run away with him, but she did clients saying that she has to stay to look after her mum. Because she is the, the virtuous Victorian lass. That's right. And the virtuous female. That's it. And I did very much enjoy um, 
the, the lovely moonlit garden and the very sort of Pollyanna like you know <laughs> climb down from the tree. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, the tree. Like, yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> that was so good. Little hearts everywhere. Little hearts. Yeah, there was a little birds tweet. No, there wasn't. Um, so, so yeah, so that's so we already know that her she's very devoted to her mum and yeah, it's very chest and despite her father doesn't want to leave her with him essentially. Uh, we then join Lord Courtley again with the three men uh, who visit Weller, where he has uh, in his possession Dracula's cloak, amulet, and a vial of Dracula's blood. The and I like how he had it in the lockbox. Yeah, and it was, and it had the fabric box. over it, and it was the big yeah, reveal. Really, yeah, we kind of already know that from the previous scene when he picked it up. But there you go. It's dramatic license. You know, we, we like these things nicely set up. That's going, it. I can see it coming. <laughs> Uh, the three men, obviously still seeking their kicks, agree to buy this, uh, buy the cloak, the amulet, and the vial of Dracula's blood for what was quite a sizable amount. And then the three, we cut to where the three men arrive at an abandoned church, where they meet up with Courtley, who dons Dracula's cape and begins to recite some ritualistic text. And let me try and recall the line. There was a very sure. good line that um, he shouts at one stage. Which was... Lord Courtley shouts? Yes. Um, where was it? The goblets. The oh, goblets. Yes. You brought them? <laughs> Which um, I just thought was fantastic and began to... I, I felt the picture really picked up at that stage. It seemed like there yeah, was the, a good half hour of this build-up yeah. of... There's okay, a lot... the old desperate men. Which yeah. I'm finding is like just um, on, on a review of the previous movies up to now it seems to be a bit of a pattern it takes mm. a bit of a while to, to wind, wind things up a bit and yeah. really get things going but once it does there's a bit of it gets pace better. going yeah. And, yeah. because it did feel that sort of once you entered that church and it was like mm. okay we're going properly gothic now there's yes. a church and it's all black mass and there's a man <laughs> screeching for goblets and that's there's right. blood in a vial and I'm like this is this is what I expect from a horror film and that's it yeah yeah it's all cranking up all the, all the boxes are starting to be ticked so yeah so it's, it's getting good so he, he opens up this vial of Dracula's blood Lord Courtney does and he pours it into several goblets. The goblets, the goblets. And he then... Which are glass, Which actually. are glass, which yeah. I've which are found... glasses, not brass, like the brass goblets that you'd mm. expect. Mm, I, I mean, he, I don't know if you noticed, but his goblet was made of stone or something. His was better. Yeah, he, Maybe yeah, that he, was just the yeah. whole thing of he's a lord. Uh, he's these, a lord. These men are just, like, you, know, you call them goblets? Oh, exactly. I guess I'll do. You know, the, the, <laughs> the bourgeoisie men sort of brought the glass decanters and <laughs> Courtley's all about the, no, I've got a proper goblet. Uh, it's medieval. It's from yeah, this looks, my ancient lineage. This, this goblet's the shit. Exactly. That's right. So, uh, yeah, he then cuts his own hand. Um, on purpose, not by accident, and squeezes small his cup. <laughs> yeah, small paper cup, paper cup. Oh, we'll use that. He squeezes the blood into the goblet. Uh, this reaction automatically occurs with the blood, his blood mixing with Dracula's blood. And Courtly demands that the three men drink the blood, but they are too afraid to. I was actually a bit surprised at that moment because mm. you could tell that Alice's father, yes, who is to all intents and purposes, the ringleader of this little group, you know, yes. club club of, um, what is an adequate word to call them? Little little club of desperados. Desperados, I, guess. I like that. You know, desperados, desperados sort of borderline douchebag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the creepy old man behaviour. Mm. But um, 
I was expecting them all to start chugging back on, you know, Drackey's blood, but no, there's that. It was a bit of a surprise because up to that, I mean, apart from the the Paxton guy, who of the three is the more timid of them, mm. uh, you could expect it. One of them might be a bit dubious, but that was the whole point of them going. So you yeah. kind of think, why? But maybe that does sort of underscore the whole pathetic uh, side of them, but also, you know, yeah. the double standards, the grass right. is always greener, I yeah. this wildlife, but... And when they're finally provided with it, they no longer want to carry it. Want to it. partake, unlike yeah. Ralph. Unlike, unlike Ralph, Ralph Bates, he's like, no, I'll do it. So, and yeah. he partakes and... He drinks the goblet. But then he recalls in pain, collapses to the floor and dies. Because that's what blood does to you. Blood, yeah. I don't know if you've ever... Have you drunk blood before? Um, well, you know, the standard, again, back to the the paper cut, you know, obviously whenever I do incur any injuries, I immediately squeeze any blood into a goblet. Yeah, yeah. But... As you do, as you should. And, like, I'm still kind of um, filling my goblet. It's, I haven't had enough paper cuts. No, clearly. We're going way off tangent. Clearly, yeah. but you see, the, the people that use computers just don't sustain enough of these injuries. That's but, right. you know, like all people, I yeah. have those awful memories of losing teeth as a child and the taste of blood in your mouth. Ah, yeah. And it's not that pleasant. Did you ever get, given, like, we're seriously going off uh, tangent, but did you ever get your mum or dad give you like a little sugar cube to suck on whenever you lost a tooth? No. With blood? My mum and dad did. I, I don't know. I think that was just to shut us up. No, I but, had the yeah. dreadful thing of the, here's the string, your tooth's going to come. <laughs> And it's like, no, Grandad, this is really not ready yet. This is really not ready. And he's like, no, come on, it's it's a milk teeth. Yeah. I, d- I sometimes yeah. doubt whether some of those were milk teeth. I, yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering why you were missing a few, yeah, but I wasn't yeah. going to say anything. Yeah, reasons. It's um, yeah. family love, <laughs> family dentistry. Yeah, every time you look in the mirror, you go like, oh, family oh, love. Oh, Grandad, yeah. you loved me so much. It's great. Okay, so back to the movie. Uh, the three men witness uh, Courtly collapse and die and get a bit panicky and run off leaving him, which is nice. There is a few um, kicks and hits as well. There is, because he kind of reaches out to Hargood, I think, and I think Hargood's the one that's kind of kicking him off him. Which I thought was pretty awful, because at that stage he was more of a pitiful, you know, poor, you know, deviant Lord Courtley, maybe, but man writhing in pain on the floor, reaching out for aid, and these men are ready uh, to put the boot in, quite literally. That's right. Yeah, they... Seriously, won't have a bar of it, will they? No. But there you go. That's their choice. And they run off. And then we cut to Hargood arriving back to the um, Hargood household, uh, where he tells his wife and Alice to tell no one of his absence. And then he breaks down in tears in front of his wife. Because, you know, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? Sort of tell no one. Yeah. Had he not said anything, they were probably sufficiently shit Presumed that he was not doing to his their, their gobs. Yeah. But, you know... Yeah. Yeah, but there you go. So anyway, he's uh, he's done that. And then uh, meanwhile, Courtney's body, back at the church, begins to turn to dust and it reforms in the shape of Dracula himself. Now, I think this is the, the moment when a hammerite was born. Ah. There was a particular piece of fine camera work mm. where there's zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, like <laughs> yeah, a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah. And then possibly one of the finest special effects of 1970. Yeah. Um, the... The dust forming over Lord Courtley's face. Yes. Hardening and then cracking. Yes. To reveal. Uh, reveal Dracula's face. Yes. I was impressed. His eyes closed and when they open he's wearing completely red contact lenses so his eyes look red. There's no pupils. They're no. just red. And it's I thought that was a bit cool. Yeah. Kind of like that. So yeah. And of, of the transitions of introduction to Dracula I actually feel this one's potentially passable 
I like the idea of him um, absorbing a person's body that was essentially his servant um, and taking on that form in order to enact what will be the crux of the movie is his revenge. Mm. So I thought that was kind of cool. So, yeah, he, uh, he stands up and he, to quote, they have destroyed my servant, they must be destroyed. You're listening to the Hammer Horror Podcast. We then cut to a complete juxtaposition where we see the the young'uns being very jovial and young. Doing uh, what young people young do. Young people horse do. Riding, horse riding, gallivanting. Having a bit of a Bit a of chuckle. a snog. Bit of a snog, yeah. That's it, yeah. And so um, I put here in my notes a sign of what is to be lost, perhaps. Innocence. Innocence is going to be lost. And this is the last moment we'll see innocence on screen. So uh, this is obviously heightened by the fact that we then get these three short scenes where Samuel Paxson awakens frightened in the night. Seeker is uh, appearing to be rifling through books in a frenzied state, and then Harwood is sitting in a drunken state in his room. So they're pretty freaked out by uh, the events that took place before, which is... Uh, well, the whole good. chain of events that they set in motion in the first mm, place. Exactly. So um, Hargood, um, I put here, Hargood once again forbids Alice from seeing Paul, but she sneaks out to party anyway. And we see Dracula awaken in the night as night descends. And we then cut to Alice returning from said party, where she, she is confronted by her father who threatens to beat her. With a whip. With a whip. Now, this is when I became a little disturbed. I'm like, this movie could take a very, yeah. very distressing turn at this stage. There was a point there where I was a bit, oh, this is pretty full on. Um, and which I kind of liked because it really makes you hate Hargood even more. Yeah. Um, which is the purpose, I think, at this stage to yeah. really show that he's not a pleasant chap. Um, but, you know, thankfully he falls over because he's drunk. And Alice is able to to get out of the the, uh, the house, and while she's running away, she stumbles and falls into Dracula's path. So she's essentially escaping from one fate and falling into another at this stage. Um, she instantly falls under his hypnosis, but just as Dracula is about to go and bite her neck, he is disrupted by the shouts from Hargood. Hargood approaches Alice, who is still under hypnosis, clubs Hargood over the head with a shovel and kills him. I must admit, as unchristian as this is, I let out a, a woot. It can only be called a woot at this <laughs> stage. It was the perfect moment of mm. he was a tool. He was a tool. He got what was coming and to him. And she used the tool to dispatch the tool. Exactly. Yeah. She called a spade a spade. Exactly. And she dispatched him. And That's right. In a very brutal way. I thought, I thought it was... Uh, yeah, I thought that summed up the relationship between her and her father in a very nice way. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And I think probably for most people watching it, mm. you do have that bit of, yeah, you got what was coming to you. Yep. But it was also good seeing with all these women, like the, the wife who was terrified of him, mm. the daughter who was climbing out of windows because she couldn't stand up to him because yeah. he was just being an absolute knob to He him. was. And then finally having a woman be the one to do him in. Ah, absolutely. Was, uh, which is an interesting thing which we'll 
come to actually in, in the next in the next instance. But um, yeah, so this this is done. Uh, Dracula, in- interestingly, I'll also add at this point is that Dracula hasn't technically laid a finger on anyone at this stage, mm. as in he hasn't killed or dispatched anyone. Um, so yeah, so first thing, the first person dispatched, and Dracula even says the first. So taking yeah. credit for his lady's work. I know, I know. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if he actually takes credit for anything down the track. We then cut to Michael Ripper, who's Mr. Hammer in my word, in my my honest opinion. Um, he plays the bumbling detective, because you've got to have a bumbling. Detective. Have to have a bumbling detective, and we find out through his conversation with Paul that Alice has gone missing in the night too. So not only have they found Hargood's dead body and are wondering what's going on, Alice has disappeared. Uh, we then cut to this funeral scene of Hargood where Alice appears and she beckons Lucy over to her, her friend and arranges a uh, rendezvous with her um, at her house at night time of which Lucy says yes and of course has to don the, um, the costume of your typical horror heroine I love how they suddenly are in this brighter coloured you know, yeah Dresses yeah. and velvets and That's right. all corseted and heaving bosomed and yes. you know as you should be for a horror as you film. should be for a horror film yeah and um, yeah and so but interesting she is quite like Alice has been missing for I don't know how long funerals take to arrange in those days but if anything like today's standards can actually take a while to get in motion so I'm thinking too much in this but Alice has been away for a while suddenly crops up she doesn't think much of it and agrees to meet her. Yeah, yeah anyway. you know. Yeah, as you do. We'll move on. There, it was so necessary. It was necessary because she does meet up with Alice and the two ride off in a carriage together and Alice begins to laugh quite manically at this stage. She does a good manic laugh. She does a very good I, manic laugh. I actually, um, I don't know the actress's name. It's Linda Hayden. I think she did a pretty good job. Yeah. Like, she did she manic did. well. She did she psychotic did well, you know. Mm-hmm. Brandishing weapons, well... We, yeah. Um, again, we'll touch upon her role later on down the track. But, um, the, uh, but yeah, there's some other roles that she played around that time, which there was a bit of a common thread in the way she displays herself on screen. But, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that down the track. But, yeah, you're right. She's, she's pretty impressive with her manic laughter. And um, so what, what happens then? Oh, yeah, so then uh, yeah, it goes a bit hysterical and scares Lucy, who... Uh, I think they arrive at this... Yeah, that's right. They arrive at the abandoned church where Dracula confronts them. After pulling up in a carriage without a driver. Without a driver. Is, is when you'd be hoping yeah. that um, Lucy would be beginning to go... Yeah, hmm. no, there's something a bit strange going on. Yeah, but no. 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 But this ties in a lot. Uh, for people that watch any kind of Dracula movie are familiar with the uh, driverless coachman... Um, in these movies and um, and I yeah. guess the characters that you know you really want to be screaming at the screen look behind yeah. you or what are you doing yeah yeah and yet they still go through it and that happens a lot with horror in general and, but that's the whole point isn't it they want well, that's that engagement the for the audience to kind of go what are you doing woman so they mosey into the church so they do they go into the church and they see Dracula there who and initially Lucy, which I found interesting at first Lucy recoils at first mm. so isn't instantly attracted to his stare which up till now I don't think has happened um, and it takes um, it takes Alice to actually pull her back 
to okay have a second attempt at, at the wooing her, uh, the, the glamouring, and she then succumbs and uh, Dracula bites her neck. Um, and she becomes a lady of the night, or a creature of the night, which is cool. So then we cut to where pace starts to pick up at this point, um, and we cut to uh, Seeker, who um, he's insisting on taking action with Paxton, and um, uh, so, yeah, that's right, So, but because they, they believe at this stage that Lord Courtley is the person that's come back and killed Hargood. They're not mm. aware of Dracula's presence. So they decide to go back and look for the body. They go back to look for the body and find it gone, at which point they open up a coffin and inside it's Lucy, um, which is Paxton's sister? daughter. Mm. Yeah, which is a bit... Ooh. Hello, baby, Hello. in the coffin. Yeah. And so, yeah, so Seca then kind of ups the ante and says, right, we have to stake her. She's a, she's a vampire, we have to kill her. Again, a lot of disturbing symbolism going on there, but still. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And I touched on that last time round too. Um, and maybe my innocence was shattered at that point, because I actually yeah. didn't think about it up to that point. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. But yeah, anyway, so yes, yeah, so he's like, no, must take her, must take her. Paxson goes a bit mad with torment, pulls a gun out. And shoots Seeker in the arm. And he does shoot very willy-nilly. Like yeah. It, it, it does, I'm amazed that mm. he landed a shot on that man. Yes, yes. And one could ask whether he did or not. Was there a third person on the grassy knoll? No, mm. there wasn't. Um, so, so anyway, so yeah, he goes a bit mad, Paxton. And um, Seeker manages to kind of get out the church grounds, but then collapses outside. Uh, Paxton starts to weep over the grave, but then some tries to pluck up courage and thinks, no, and a bit of uh, rationale comes back, and he picks up the stake and goes to stake her, at which point she opens her eyes, he gets a bit freaked out, uh, as you do when you think somebody's dead and they wake up. But uh, this gives her the upper hand, and between her and Alice, who suddenly appears, they pin Paxton to the ground and stake him through the heart, killing him. Which, again, almost got a woot out of me. Yeah. But, you know, call me harsh. It was that... Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The women are the ones that are doing the deed at this stage. Which, you know, again, new to Hammer films, mm. I wouldn't have thought was so much of a 1970s... No, it's interesting, isn't it? ...film. It's sort of, you know, female revenge, yeah. you know, really well, there's, violent... There's an interesting thing in the, in the last one, Dracula has risen from the grave, which Miles and I were remarking on, is that they're... The women are very strong characters in that mm. movie, and we get a bit of a sense of that here too. There is a bit of like you know the women taking taking the well, lead. They, t- so they to take speak. back control pretty yeah. much, yeah, big time. Which is interesting, um, albeit through Dracula's kind of um, yes, which I guess power. is the um, so, so. There's always there is the a catch twenty two that they've been really hypnotized by you know. The, the, the king of darkness. That's right. The lord of darkness. The lord of darkness so. himself. So anyway, we'll, we'll see what what is to come. But so yeah, we get the power is female power possession. Is devil possession? Yes. Oh. Oh. It's international. Bit of a Women's topic Day. of debate. It is International Women's Day as we record this. So writing should um, women's power be about devil possession? Hmm. No. Okay. Probably a good one to steer. <laughs> but it, uh, as long, like, but interesting topic if, to talk about on the on the uh, podcast though. If you have any thoughts about women empowerment through the Hammer movies, yeah, write in, talk to us, let us know your views. 
Talk about the hammer glamour. The hammer glamour, indeed. I love these new terms. Yes, indeed, indeed. It's all good. So at, the, at which point, so Paxton's been dispatched, at which point Dracula declares the second. Again, not lifting a finger. Not lifting a finger at this point, yeah. No nails broken. Nothing, no. Just stands and watches. So we cut to Seeker who awakes in the church grounds. It's morning. Um, he's still a bit wounded. Uh, goes back in the church. Still a little bit gunshot. A little bit gunshot, yeah. He goes back in to see where Paxton is and can't find him anywhere. So he goes home and kind of falls asleep in the study. He's a bit overwhelmed. Yeah, a bit overwhelmed. Needs some smelling salts. Yeah, he has been shot, so I'll give him his dues. Um, his son Jeremy comes back at this now, point. Jeremy's hair. Completely. The big quiff. Quiff, that was pretty quiff. remarkable. Yeah, big, I love how you, you know, the seventies. You just couldn't take the seventies uh, out of a seventies film. <laughs> no, essentially, right. I kind of like that though. I know. It's It'll be interesting to time. see. I think um, one of the iconic ones is uh, which we've yet to talk about in the podcast, which I think is the one that you're due to come back and talk to me. Ha, 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 ha. Is Jackler AD seventy two? Excellent. With all their whole, uh, you know, wah wah pedal action going on in the score. It's great. But well, that's an, that's for another discussion. Um, so yes, yeah, so Jeremy returns and uh, he sees uh, Lucy at the window and he invites her inside, uh, which she in turn bears her fangs and bites him on the neck. We then cut to Seeker moments later, waking up and sees Jeremy and realizes that his son has become the undead. A little bit too late, as Jeremy stabs him and then kills him. Ah. Oh. These men, they're just always a little bit behind the eight ball, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, not really following it, are they? No. no. And then we see, I think Dracula was lurking behind a couch at the time or something, pops up and says, the third. With a lot of gravitas. With a lot of gravitas, which I can't do Christopher Lee credit with that poor just, imitation. You know, yeah. you yeah. often see it in his face. He really doesn't want to deliver a lot of these lines. No. And we'll touch on that too when we get to talk about Christopher Lee and his role. Um, so yeah, look. Anyway, so at this stage, Dracula's punishment has been carried out. He's all three uh, people He's that killed off his own. Uh, the shopping okay, list is, is done. done. So he goes home to go and have a nap. I think. And a snack. And a snack, of which yeah, it's, it's Lucy, isn't it, that follows him, saying, "Did I please you? Did I please you?" And um, and uh, he just turns around and says, "Yeah," and feeds on her kills her that's the end of Lucy so that's his first um, that, at this stage what we're probably an hour into the movie and that's the first time we see Dracula actually kill somebody which I kind of liked yeah. that you know Dracula is a clever enough character that his, his vengeance his yeah. grand vengeance is enacted through it's kind of good his emissaries yeah yeah that's right and so his puppet so to speak is no longer needed so yeah, it becomes food mm. which is kind of cool um, a peckish. A bit peckish, yeah. So, and then we cut to Paul. Um, for those of you who've forgotten, because he hasn't really been on the scene for a little while, he is um, Alice's uh, wet blanket. Wet blanket, yeah. And uh, he, but interestingly, he's the only one that's really given a damn about what's going on and following mm -hmm. things up. Uh, everyone else seems to be going about their daily business. Anyway, so he's talking with the detective. Because uh, he summoned him, and, uh, because Seeker just before he died wrote in his uh, a letter to Paul, basically kind of telling him everything that's happened, as you do. I thought at this point, why didn't he write that letter to his son? That's a really good point. But he chose Paul instead. 
Anyway, segue. Um, but he... Uh, but Plot yeah. point. Plot, Plot point. Considered yeah, yeah. as it was probably just hashed out on a typewriter. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that he chose to neglect his son. Anyway, so but so Paul at this stage then is like suddenly aware of everything that's been happening. He's like, oh, okay, better do something about that. So he goes in search of um, Alice based on Seeker's writings. We cut to the, uh, the abandoned church again where Dracula is and Alice is there. Dracula goes to buy Alice and possibly kill her as well because doesn't need her anymore. But he's disrupted by the cockerel crowing and dawn. Breaking. Again, you know, there's always that convenient, yeah, convenient Stops. moment. But it's convenient interesting at this crow. point because she actually is still only under hypnosis. She hasn't been bitten. Mm. She's not become a creature of the night. Which I must admit, um, when I I watched the film in stages, mm. it didn't quite click for me yeah. the first time. So yes. I was oh. Um, yeah. to you one of them too and then I guess because they made quite a feature of the bite mark yeah um, that's so right victim number two that yeah. you went oh okay hang yeah. on she's she's redeemable we've yeah she still got, has her innocence intact we possibly have the innocent ah, young couple yeah, ready for virtue we do. are they going through? to come through triumphant we shall see Paul goes in search of Alice based on Seeker's writings as I said and he finds Lucy's corpse drifting in the lake um, to kind of for those of you that are struggling to follow the plot Lucy's actually Paul's sister so he is actually quite distraught when he sees her you'd hope so you'd hope so too yeah so he's obviously aware that things are getting darker but press on he must and he man with a mission that's right and then that's when he arrives at the church and he uh, automatically gets through the door puts a cross on the door to bar its exit. Because I like how um, so many of these characters are pretty au fait mm. with, okay, we're they dealing, know all the rules. We're, we're dealing with a certain type of, you mm. know, Prince of Darkness That's here. right. This is how I deal with this which, shit. Which you kind of can, I guess, understand at this point, because if he's read Seeker's writing, uh, writing, Seeker was the one that was a bit more learned. And did a bit of research. Bit of research. At the library. At the library, yeah, in his study. And um, I would be there in a suit of garlic with all sorts yeah. of rosary beads That's festooned it. off me, but, you know, yep. preparation time was minimal for this guy. So That's right, yeah, he was just like, no, I'm going to go there just as me and across. And he, yeah, so he uh, bars the way, and um, we then get this kind of like loud screaming effect, and uh, then all of a sudden everything's quiet, and Dracula appears. See, I found that weird because I assumed that young Lucy was finally having her innocence yeah. ripped from her, but I think it was mm. just a it was just a token of, sound effect. It's uh, Dracula standing there with a little uh, recorder device, and he just ah. <laughs> oh, sorry for those of you I'm miming pressing a recordable device I'll cut that bit out um, <laughs> so anyway so uh, yeah Dracula um, appears and um, he uh, Paul grabs the cross a cross I should say and he starts showing it to Dracula who starts to cower Alice at this point who's still under um, Dracula's spell grabs the cross off Paul in a bit of a struggle uh, yeah because so she's still under Dracula's power a bit there and she kind of goes to Dracula to seek his approval and he almost pushes her aside at which point by doing that he breaks the trance mm. that's between them and she kind of realises uh, oh, what's going on all a bit weird and Dracula tries to escape by climbing up the church because it's the most obvious way out of the building yeah. isn't it not out the door which doesn't have a crucifix barring it no or it, does it still at this point? Did, I, I'm trying to think I what crosses. I thought it was crosses. the front gate. Yeah, the cross. interesting. Anyway, but yeah, he's like 
he's climbing up this wall. This is where it gets a little bit... He needs to head for the stained yeah, glass. Yeah, that's right. He has to go for that stained glass window, which has a cross on it. And light streaming through it. And light streaming through it, and he burns his back. Mm. Um, but he still tries to break the glass to escape. And then has a bit of an epiphany moment where he kind of has a bit of a flashback to what the car, uh, the church looked like in its former glory. And it wasn't good. And it wasn't good, and... Yeah, and so there's a bit of a prayer session going on. I quite liked it. I'm thinking of setting up my home like that as a bit of a day A bit thing. of beige? Yeah, a bit of beige. A bit of green highlights. A bit of green, and I'd have my own priest there praying as well. Obviously. Yeah, as you do. You need it. Uh, yeah, In the it. corner. Yeah, just in the corner. Just go, yeah, that's my priest. <laughs> anyway. With communion uh, wine. With communion wine, yes, yes. The wine part's good. So, yeah, so this bit, this bit is a bit weird, isn't it? So, like, he has a bit of a flashback and sees what this uh, uh, church was like in its former glory, and it sends him into a bit of a dizzy fit, has a bit of a vertigo moment, and falls off and lands on the pulpit. Which was pretty piss-weak. Which was a bit piss-weak. And then he starts to die and crumbles into dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, getting a bit biblical. Yeah. But, um... Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of went, ah, oh, okay. It, it was quite promising up to that point. <laughs> it was promising, but maybe even had they just flash back to some amazing medieval, you know, yeah. high church, you know, with furibles going with all the incense. But I, no, it's like, let's no. go for a boring suburban church. Yeah, yeah. It's really I strange. guess that would scare people. That would scare a lot of people. Anything. Maybe it was the carpet that finally did him in. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon it is. He saw the carpet. Yeah, he was just like, oh, that's he terrible. The, when, I can't they, stick around here. It's those churches where they decided, let's go modern. Let's yeah. go really sort <laughs> yeah. of, let's have lots of wood everywhere. Let's go church modern. Yeah, let's yeah. church modern. Sort of no, no more decoration, no more gold. Get rid of that. That's it. It just became dull. People, people are getting uh, too distracted by the bling factor in these churches. Mm. We need to really dull it down. Yeah, so look, uh, I'm not really sure what to say about that other than it was a bit of a really weak death scene. Um... We then um, we then cut to Paul and Alice leaving the church together, uh, supposedly to live a better life. Yeah, I hope so. We after hope so all that. after all that. And the movie closes on the red dust surrounding where Jack's body used to lie. And I must admit, my first thought was, how are they going to bring him back now? You're listening to the Hammer Horror Podcast. That's about the uh, the size of it as far as the plot is concerned. Um, what, what were your initial thoughts on the movie, Meredith? Um, probably a little bit of a mixed bag of thoughts. Yeah, um, yeah. Some very fine special effects. You know I've rabbited on about this a little bit already, but that, that particular transformation of... Um, Good old um, Ralph into Drackey. Ralph into Drackey, yep. It was a fine moment It was, like, was a beautiful um, moment of celluloid history I, right there. You know, and obviously the first half of the film, I think the pacing, it, it did take a while to get going, but it, it did tick all those boxes of that particular genre, that really yep. sort of nostalgic, sort of unashamedly gothic horror yes. genre. 
I am a bit of a fan of carry-on films, I will admit. Yeah. Um, most people would probably say closet fan or, oh, yes, <laughs> I, I have seen them for, you know, cultural research purposes. I actually think they're quite fun. Yep. Um, they're quite cheesy. And, and this yeah. sort of felt a bit the same for me. It yes. was um, very much the type of film that brought back memories of staying up late and watching something you shouldn't. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, it's got that whole kind of, like you say, there's that nostalgic element to it. There's that, like, late night, I shouldn't really be watching this, but it's 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 kind of timid horror. It's not kind of... That's, for yeah. the modern audience, we've gone to quite an extreme as far as what what's shocking. And it's not more about... It's not really the shock element that we're going for in these movies when we're watching, watching them back. It's more that kind of... Um, gothic horror um, and because of the time it's shot it's it's more that there are camp elements that are thrown into the midst and mm. hence the connection with the carry-on that you were talking about but um, yeah overall it's kind of like a bit of a feel-good factor to it you know? yeah and I do find it intriguing that in that sort of 70s early 70s time period it was quite transitional filmmaking wise I guess you yeah. know obviously you had your Hitchcock's far earlier getting darker and getting progressively darker. Like yep. if you watch a, you know, again, massive Hitchcock fan, you watch an earlier Hitchcock, yeah. it often is not feel good, but not as threatening, not as much of a, yeah. you're chewing my brain up yes. and doing permanent damage. It's going <laughs> to yeah. come back and wreak horrible havoc at 3am. That's it. That's um, it. This was kind of, um, when you compare it to something like The Exorcist or, or more sort of, I guess you'd say contemporary horror films. Yeah. Um, there, there is something really comforting about going back to this more nostalgic, more formulaic, in yeah. many ways, yeah, yeah. I guess, Absolutely. Um, type of film. And it was good fun. Yeah, yeah it's it a good fun film. Um, I mean, like, from my point of view, I, there are there are elements that I liked, which I'll probably talk about when we round up at the end, but um, the, it's, it's one of those... Um, there are pockets of the movie where I... Feel if I hold it up against the other ones in the canon that we've discussed so far in the podcast, it has an element where it doesn't quite reach uh, the bar that has been set by previous ones. Part of that is symptomatic of it being becoming quite a sort of a set formula. Yeah, this is, this is a hammer film. Yeah, I think it, in a way it's been trapped within its own kind mm. of uh, walls that's been set up to keep that kind of formula formulaic setting what was interesting about the one the, the movie prior to this one uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grey was a new director at the helm but it felt fresh you know what we were mm. watching felt fresh this one feels to me like it was it was potentially trying to reach for that but it, it never it didn't quite hit the standard it had it so, had some really great moments that's it that's what I saw so I don't want to take away from that because there are some there's some really interesting moments and I will probably discuss that at the end of the podcast about our favourite little moments, but um, yeah, it was good. I think I think for the for the sake of the podcast and listeners, let's let's talk about the players of the piece. I more importantly, Christopher Lee. Uh, he again has come back to don the cape, so to speak. Somewhat, somewhat reluctantly. Somewhat reluctantly, yeah. Um, and as we did discuss, or you you spoke about, um, is that originally um, he he didn't want to. He didn't want to talk. He didn't want to take on the role um, unless he got um, some of the because um, he was aware of the Ameri- growing American audience with the Hammer films, and so he basically said, "Look, I will do it if I get a percentage of the American distributors' gross." Savvy man. He was a savvy man indeed. But like Hammer, kind of 
disagreed. <laughs> and so they were looking for um, alternative measures when this film was uh, originally green-lit. And the Dishy Mr. Bates? Dishy Mr. Bates was considered as playing a younger version of Dracula. Now, he, he is a good baddie. He's a great baddie. I do like Ralph. He's, um, he's one of those people that's, uh, like, well, as you said, a bit of an eye candy for the female perspective. But he's got that, he's got that suave cadness down pat. It's it's um, a little maybe too down pat. You reckon? I, I worry that Ralph Bates. That he, he's just being Ralph Bates on screen. Yeah, that he's you know still probably crawling around the West End of London, sort of <laughs> saying you know cutting comments to ladies and they're swooning at the same time. Yes. he's very very much that sort of character. He type. he is yeah, and, and like he's hard, yeah he's like all the more uh, I think. It's, yeah, well, I think we'll come to him in a minute. Like, we'll, we'll talk about him straight off the back of Christopher Lee. So, look, at, anyway, from the historical perspective, so Ralph, for all he's known, has been cast the role. But when uh, Warner Brothers and Seven Arts caught wind of this, who are the, the money, essentially, mm-hmm. um, they, uh, they demanded Christopher Lee take the title of role. So, look, there was a bit of two in a frame, and it finally got agreed upon that Christopher Lee would be in it. So there was a bit of uh, tweaking of the script, um, and that's why we get this whole um, Ralph Bates then taking on the character of Lord Courtley. He dies, and then Dracula kind of takes on his form in order to. Which I think, read as Dracula sort of bringing him back um, methods goes, yeah. it was a pretty awesome one. Like, I, I think it. that's one thing in the films that is always a bit of a stretch. Yeah. This whole thing of how do we bring him back? Yes. You know, oh, he's had a massive crucifix shoved right <laughs> through him and like a crazy yeah. man in the woods seeing him sort of turning into exciting red powder. Yes. And it's, okay, okay, show me, show me, Hammer, how are you going to do yeah. this? And I, I think it may be... I don't think it works, but it's particularly because of the whole kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, the ritual kind of uh, rites and the almost that sacrificing... Yeah. Concept. Yeah, so well somebody had to be sacrificed in order to bring him back, and in this case, Ralph Bates was that of Lord Courtley. The character of Lord Courtley becomes that, um, and it is the impetus for Dracula's motives moving forward. Is because mm. he had to essentially one of his servants was sacrificed for him to continue. Okay, so people might think this is just crowbarring, in, but I, uh, I I feel it works, and that's not like. You do too. Oh, well, I, for me, that's where the film really picked up. Yeah. Something's black mass and, you know, my goblets. Um, yeah, goblets. You know, <laughs> you know it's sort of like in Coming to America, wipers. <laughs> you know, lots of goblets. But, um, that's brilliant. <laughs> but, no, it, for yeah. me, it really picked up at that point. Yeah, and, agreed. You know, as much as Ralph was a great baddie, and I know we're going to talk more about Ralph We'll, soon, we'll talk but, about him now if you, you know, want. Yeah. Christopher like, Lee is Dracula. Christopher Lee is Dracula through and through, and that's, and that's how I feel it. It is too, and even though he was reluctant to do it, I I do feel it would be sorely missed without him at the helm. And I think it probably saved the whole franchise. Yeah, yeah, because they still were like keep the man fifth Dracula into the movie, and there's still another four to come. Mm. So yeah, there, there's still a yeah, they still had a few ideas to try and uh, ring that ring that storyline exactly. out. Exactly, and you know, so, it wasn't time to pass the cape on. No, so. that's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, Ralph Bates, yeah, he plays the Lord Courtley and look, he's, uh, all I wanted to add really to that is that towards the end of Hammer's, uh, turn in the spotlight, um, within the film industry, he, um, he actually was, uh, quite synonymous to a lot of the films that was made. He was in The Horror of Frankenstein, Lust for a Vampire, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and Fear in the Night. Um, so 
yeah, he became quite known for those movies, and I guess that mantle was already being passed on to him in a sense, and this was the first indication of that really coming true, um, because, you know, Christopher Lee um, was going to older, Peter Cushing likewise, you know, so there was that kind of how do we inject a bit of um, mm. They should have sort of a spin-off, I think, Lord Courtley's series. A Lord Courtley spin-off, yeah, it would have been interesting, hey... But there you go. So there, that's Ralph Bates. Did you want anything else to add to Ralph? Okay, cool. Um, well, let's look at the other people that, that um, take part of this uh, this movie. There's there's Jeffrey Keane, who plays the Hargood character. Uh, he's probably best known for playing Frederick Gray, in the Minister, as, who, who's the Minister of Defence in six of the James Bond films, mainly around the Roger Moore period. Um, look, he was also notable for playing uh, roles in Dr. Zhivago and Born Free. But I remember watching that uh, the, uh, the movie and thinking he looked so familiar. It was on research. I, I was think like, that was the thing with so many of the cast members. You look yeah. at them and it's like, are you just very British of the film industry of the 60s and 70s and I've seen right. you in a few million BBC series or have you been in some major, major film? And That's it, yeah. Most of the time... Yeah, most of the time it, it, it tends to be BBC, like BBC or ITV, ITV kind of LWT... Um, movie, uh, TV series in Britain that they were uh, people would have seen their faces in but yeah on an odd occasion some of these people have been known for their, uh, their film background and there's a lot of theatre background too mm. that I tends to pop up I think are a definite solid bunch of actors there's yeah. no one that I'd really say was a weak link and definitely with um, Harwood yeah. he, he played a he could have been a really cookie cutter character and yeah. in some ways yes he ticked all the genre boxes but he he played him well. He did play him well. There's that that one scene um, leading up to his demise, in, in a sense, where he comes home drunk and is threatening to beat his daughter. And that was a was disturbing a bit, scene. Was a bit disturbing, yeah. And but he played it well, <laughs> uh, to his credit. So yeah, all the more uh, for um, again going to the quality of the actors in it. it like, interestingly, the uh, the person playing um, his wife, Martha Hargood, she was also known for. Uh, uh, her roles in the British television industry too, uh, but like more, what I guess turned uh, critics' heads was her debut performance in a feature as Lady Usher in *The Fall of the House of Usher*, uh, um, a Edgar Allan Poe-based um, novel. Well, I think it's a a, a novella, and this is a, yeah an ad- adaptation of it in in the film circles. But she was also in uh, performances in uh, *Cleopatra* and. And also cropped up in another Hammer vehicle, Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. Um, again, was a lot of a, a theatre-based background with her too. But yeah, adds to that whole Which dynamic. Which as well does fit perfectly with this sort of genre and this type of film, having someone that is a bit more theatrical. And uh, yep. that is part of the fun of things. It can be that quite over-the-top, I'm being dramatic, rather than trying to be very much, you know... The method I'm being so that's subtle, it. you can only see me acting with my eyelashes. That's it. That's it. So yeah. yeah. No, no, it, it works. It works particularly well in this genre, and you know, um, and these people, the people that we're talking about, are no exceptions. They, they really bring that gravitas and strength to the role of the characters that they're playing. Um, I want to move on to. Um, Peter Salas, who, who plays Samuel Paxson. Most, uh, most, Briti- most British television viewers would know him as from the long-running series Last of the Summer Wine. I, I have to admit, though, there was a bit of a twinge of excitement when I learned that he provides the voice to Wallace in Wallace and Gromit. 
Um, has the man been knighted? He has an OBE. Okay, there so, is a god, yeah. and the, the, the queen is a good woman. Yes, yeah, she is. I like. I was. Yeah, was, as I said, there's a bit of excitement about that. He also was a. He also provided the voice to Ratty from um, the Wind in the Willows, which was a children's stop animation series from when I was a kid. I'm getting um, So I was just like, oh, this guy's a legend. Um, but yeah, he's like equally. I, I liked his performance as well in this. Like he's the more timid of the of the three. Uh, guys that go out to seek their kicks, and he 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 really translated that well on the screen. The the other of the three who played uh, Jonathan Seeker was a guy called John Carson. He was also a, a regular um, Hammer player. He uh, cropped up in Plague of Zombies and Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, and also uh, I believe he was in um, one of the episodes of the TV series Hammer House of Horror. So again, quite a staple staple. Um, Hammer player in the mix, which Hammer did turn to, which I guess happens a lot with like directors and producers. Anyway, they tend to turn to those that they can rely upon and and uh, have a working relationship yeah. with. Um, I want to bring in um, Paul Saxon now, who, who's the uh, the male heartthrob of the piece. He was played by Anthony Higgins, and uh, look, he's known for. Uh, he played a, like a smaller role in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but for me, he was in uh, the Draftman's Contract, Peter Greenaway's movie, which, which is a very amazing film. I love it visually. Love that movie, and yeah, um, and that's where I was like, oh, God, it's him. But again, I got another twinge of excitement when I realised that he was also uh, played Professor Moriarty in the Young Sherlock Holmes movie. And I remember as a kid, like really loving that movie. And, yeah. And I love how we can all just try and out-nerd each other without oh. sort of, oh, I love that film. Oh, yes, I've got all of that on DVD. Or, yes, oh, yeah. I've still got my VHS copies of that. Yeah. Oh, far out. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But it's like, I, I guess, like, the, the point of raising those, both, both uh, Anthony Higgins and Peter Sellers, and the fact that they are connected to other things I've seen them in, is that, again, lays weight to that whole nostalgia feel again mm. of watching these Hammer movies back. You kind of see these people that you've seen in your youth growing up. Um, in different roles, and yeah, you kind of had that interconnected um, kinship with the movies themselves. But, yeah, it's cool. All I need is Teabag uh, and the Silver Spoon. I need to know what happened to those people, and I need to watch their entire that's filmography. <laughs> Teabag, far out, that's a throwback. Um, that, that was character forming for me. <laughs> Sadly, I wouldn't. Uh, Oh, it went for ages too. There were like five or six series of the thing. It should like, still be going. It should be still be going. Mind, I would, that is where I'd be working today. I would, be, I would anything. I would Excellent. clean the, the toilets on the set of that. Well, you've heard it here first. Uh, if it ever gets resurrected, BBC ITV, whoever made it, the offer is open. Yeah, cleaning toilets for you. Um, okay, so let's just quickly talk about the the other, I guess, minor characters. Oh no! I, oh, sorry. I just should just add that Anthony Higgins also was in uh, one another Colt Hammer film, Vampire Circus. That should be mentioned because we potentially may talk about that that maybe um, in a further podcast. Um, but so let, there's no clowns. Scared clowns. Oh well, I can't tell you. Can't tell oh. you. <laughs> we'll have to wait. Work. Wait and see. It. Let's uh, let's look at some of the uh, some of the uh, I guess the minor players within the piece. Um, very quickly, let's talk about uh, Martin Jarvis, who uh, played uh, Jeremy Seeker. Um, just to add that he is again another rather trained uh, actor who was known for numerous TV work. But interestingly, he plays uh, Santine in the in the recent um, animation Wreck It Ralph. So um, 
some of these people come in and they um, that were in Hammer movies and they're doing a lot of voice work these mm. days. Um, and it's been I've noticed it in, a, in a, a quite a lot of these people when they're producing uh, when they're doing acting work these days. I think I think that might be a good move for him, judging by well his, his hair. hair. Is so amazing. I could be that. wrong. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw him in a really old Doctor Who episode lately. I don't. He looked very similar. I was watching it last night. They sporting the same marvelous dude. Well, it's, it's a, it would have been of the same movie. era, so as well. I think it was the John Pertwee era, as well, the latter John Pertwee era. Um, but yeah, right in if I'm wrong, because I just saw him and I kept, me- I kept meant to look at the credits and I didn't. Naughty me. The other person I want to talk about is Roy Kinnear, who you pointed out uh, quite rightly is uh, playing the father of Ruka Salt in um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, he's a, he plays Weller in this movie. Um, he's also known for his uh, his role of Planchette in Richard Lester's Three Musketeer movies, but um, I guess notably he, he tragically was known that for uh, the fact that he lost his life during the making of one of the sequels in a riding accident, and in turn this led to the director Richard Lester um, quitting the movie business. He never directed a movie nice. after that. Uh, and I remember when I was quite young, like Roy Kinnear in TV circles in Britain was was huge, mm. um, and I remember it being quite quite a big thing big on the moment. news at the time. Um, you know, tra- tragic loss to the industry, really. Um, but I, I, like in my later life, discovered him in another film, which I kind of remember him for more these days, and it's a role he played uh, of um, Monty Bartlett in Sidney Lumet's The Hill, which also stars Sean Connery. Um, if you've never seen it, I do recommend it. It's a good uh, war movie set in a POW camp of people that are deserting, essentially, and they get sent to this camp to... Fuck their ideas up. It's a good one. And also, there's Michael Ripper. Uh, uh, just very, very quickly, we've spoken about him in previous podcasts, so I, I won't bore people about how much I actually think this guy's a legend. Um, but it's good to see him pop he's up. Beaming, he's beaming as he says, yeah. says the name. And I am. Yeah. To me, he is he is Hammer, um, and uh, he crops up again this time in a smaller role as the bumbling detective. But it's a you gotta role. have a bumbling. Detective. Gotta have a bumbling detective. Cool. So that's that's the main the main crux of the players. But who am I missing out? Of course, the the ladies. The, the hammer glamour. The hammer glamour. Favorite term in this world. It's great. I love it. I love it. So the hammer glamour. So we, let's kick off with uh, Alice, um, played by Linda Hayden. Um, I thought she did really well in this movie. Actually, just as a just as a, an aside, she came across as she was able to play her role to a decree, as in like that. The whole manic laughter thing that cropped up, and and the dispatching of her father. I was father. very taken with the manic laughter. But um, yeah, the so girls did a fantastic job, I think. And yeah. I, that was the other sort of thinking about things I enjoyed about the film. Yeah. That real sort of a, a good revenge film. There's something really satisfying about that, and also there's a bit of a I don't know if I should say girl power, considering yeah. that they're being Dracula's you know minions to kill but there was something about when she took the spade to oh, her father spade it her was father. just that sort of yes get the sad middle-aged delusional <laughs> thrill-seeking bastard uh, yeah. get him yeah, out of with here the spade. that's it yeah and um yeah but i think those girls uh, they they did seem um there is that bit of typecasting that you do sort of worry and um, I'm sure you'd know the history of this, but sort of what sort of careers those girls went on to. Yeah, well, that's what I, was, I was going to touch on that actually. Like, it's, I, I do make a note of this with it when we talk about the women in particular because um, they the, are very like, much, they the, are very much the eye candy yeah. of these movies, and and they kind of fit within those times. And unfortunately, they can kind of get a bit trapped with that 
um, association to those roles too. In the same way that um, the Carry On women, I think, are yeah, not true. sort of in that loop of yeah, that's very right, much yeah, <laughs> yeah very, very much so. Um, I mean, I, I, what I've written down here that is that was my strumpet noise, that, by the way. That was great. I, I might do that as a loop later mm, on. Mm, it's a song. There's music in there. <laughs> um, but she was. Um, she did kind of prop up uh, despite her difficulties in in keeping in the movie industry. She did. Uh, uh, play a really minor role in um, Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, which was a second series that the uh, Hammer Industry did in their Twilight. Um, so that's sort of the Alfred Hitchcock presents kind of, on the yeah. Hammer world. They did they did one they did one earlier to that. Well, they did two earlier to that. There was one early early on that was called Journey into the Unknown, um, which was a bit of a lesser known one. The one that really kicked off, which was more towards the point where they were trying to really push themselves into the TV industry, which is um, Hammer House of Horror. And there's some real classic gems in that one. This second one took a bit of a shift because they were trying to go for more of that psychological um, thriller mm. angle. Like, like you said, Hitchcock presents... Might be so much their shtick, really. No, I mean, they've done, they've done some movies which uh, I felt really... They've done really well. I'm a, I'm a, I don't know if it's... A lot of people are a big fan of it. I am a huge fan of it, and it's called um, Straight On Till Morning. And for me, that's one of their better movies, and it comes later in the canon, too, um, of Hammer Films. I, I, lo- I like that one, and it's, I think that's what they were trying to go with, and this one didn't really hit the mark. But anyway, she was in this one called Black Carrion. And, um, and just um, also, there's a, she was also known for... A, when she was 13, she was starred in a controversial movie called Baby Love, um, as well, which I'll let you decide mind, what that's the about. The mind is boggling, and I yeah. think the mind is going to the place where the, the script went. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, but also she was in an entran- she played an entrancing performance in Blood on Satan's Claw as well, which really, um, I guess, got a, a few people's attention with, with her role in that movie. But I, I feel like she ended up being a bit of a victim of declining British film industry, really. And, uh, I guess such a transitional time in the industry as well. Yeah, that, that, that's it. You know, the tastes of the public yeah. and the types of films being made do yeah. change pretty dramatically. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, let's, let's also look at, let's look at the other ladies of the piece. There's Isla Blair. Now, um, she played the role of Lucy in this movie. Um, she's mainly known for her, again, TV roles. She did crop up in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and, and also was in the film Battle of Britain. Um, I believe you know her from some voice well, work, though. Well, I was really, really chuffed when I saw her name come up. I'm like, surely it can't be. <laughs> it is. I know that voice. Um, I'm one of those people that loves nothing better, and sadly a lot of these are still on cassette. The, um, the, the book narrated for you, so, you know, the yes. drive to Canberra, something <laughs> like that. You can just go, I'm going to listen to Pride and Prejudice, or I'm going to listen to a biography about Elizabeth I. Yes. A biography I have about Elizabeth and Mary, cousins, rivals, queens. <laughs> I'm pretty certain I could That's be wrong, right. but one of my audio books is definitely an Isla Blair job. Awesome. There you go. Beautiful dulcet tones does that woman possess. She does indeed. Yeah, and I do know she did a lot. Again, like some of the other her other peers, um, did a lot of voice work and has been known for that more, more in her later career. Okay, well, that's good. Um, the last person of the Hammer Glamour I'd like to talk about is Madeline Smith. Um, she was known more for her roles in, um, well, more predominantly for her role in The Vampire Lovers, another Hammer film where she became, she played the lesbian lover of Ingrid Pitt's character. In As it, you and, do. Uh, 
lots of, I guess, taboo moments within that, which I'll let uh, the listeners uh, paint their own picture or go and rent the media. Um, but she was also in um, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell as well, so and played a very chilling role in that one. Um, so she became a bit of a, a known hammer uh, lady or hammer glamour. She was also known for her comedic strumpet roles in uh, the likes of Art Pompeii, Doctor at Large and The Two Ronnies. Um, I've also noted here that she played Miss Caruso in Live and Let Die as well. Uh, another that's a, that's a good Bond resume, film. I must say. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. She's still like known in Hammer Circles now. She'll crop up to these memorabilia events and stuff. To these days, and yeah, so she's a bit, a bit of a much loved um, hammer glamour lady. So that kind of wraps up the players, and um, I think uh, let's uh, let's try and let's maybe wrap things up. Was there any final thoughts that you want to add? Do you, shall I lead? Uh, lead away. Yeah, yeah, okay. You're the well, expert. <laughs> obviously, I'm just I don't know expert. you. I'm a, I'm a big I'm a fan. Fledgling hammer. All right. Art. Well, I, look, I, I'll, I'll put a few things in. There's there's a favourite moments. Um, I put in, I really like the concept of the three older patrons seeking their kicks, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, don't have the balls to see it through. Yeah, the wuss out was pretty Yeah, I, I kind of like that concept. I thought, I put here, Ralph Bates is fantastic in this movie, and I, I just kind of wish there was more of him in it, really, but understandable with the uh, transition stage that mm. he had to... Uh, take his bow in order to let Christopher Lee have his entrance. I like the fact that it's a, essentially a Dracula revenge movie. Yeah, that really, really toasted my crumpet as yeah, well. Yeah, that's kind I of like pretty the, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a um, revenge film. A bit of a revenge, revenge film, yeah. And you're kind of almost, as you said, booting uh, the the uh, the three men as they're dispatched throughout the movie. Which is a mark of a pretty well-made film. If, yeah. You know, someone's doing something diabolical and you're still cheering them on. That's it. The, the, the filmmakers have had their way. That's it, exactly. And I, that leads on nicely to the other moments that I really liked. Hargood's drunken turn and his comeuppance with the mm. shovel. And also the staking of Samuel Paxton's character I thought was particularly cool. It was, it was pretty gruesome, but I, li- I like that it's... And it, this feeds back into the nostalgia thing. Mm. It's not gruesome, gruesome... Like, it's blood and guts, but yep. it's not... Mentally disturbing, psychological. I need to go hide it. under my bed, blood and, blood and guts. I'm not saying Correct. it's G-rated by any stretch <laughs> no, of the imagination, but it is part of the sort of fun. It's part of the rollicking story. It's yes. like, it follows that nice familiar pattern, but then it sort of goes off on its little tangents, and you're, and that's where I think these films catch you, where it sort yes. of goes off somewhere, and you're like. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Like that Harwood's turn, for example, that was one. Yeah, that was like, good. That was a good moment because yeah. because you really felt like well, of the three, he was he was the more I guess nastier of them, and, mm. and yet the fact that he was the first to, re- to be dispatched is not really known. I guess in modern films, you would leave him to the last because yeah. of him being such a bastard. That was kind of refreshing to see that. I yeah. Weak moments of the film, I look. I, even though I like the resurrection part, I, I do question whether it was a bit far-fetched. But I, as I said, I think, I think it does work. But um, I don't know, question mark around that one. A bit undecided. Yeah, well, definitely um, the weakest moment I think we're in agreement about. Which is what I put here. It, the death of Dracula was just pathetic. I think, um, well, you know, nothing does strike more fear into me than, like, a <laughs> 1970s built... Yeah. Church with its beige carpet, and you know, it would kill. Let's, it, it would Let's kill, get rid of the gold. It would kill the average person, let alone somebody as magnanimous as Dracula. So exactly. I, I guess we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. It was a bit confusing though, because yeah. he sort of was 
as, as any sensible vampire creature of the night does, heading straight for the window, the source of light. Yes. They're trying to escape, which yes. is, you know, logic yeah, yeah. over there nicely. And, um, yeah, and then looking down and seeing the modern church or the church as it was, it, that was yeah. really sort of a bit discombobulating. It, it was. It really threw you out of the picture. And For a Victorian yeah, set piece. That's right. And then sort of flash to what is clearly not a Victorian church. <laughs> I was like, what's going on here? So something got messed up. Pre- pre- premonition maybe rather than a flashback. Yeah, yeah. This is the way the church is going to go. Oh, I'm going to ground for this. Yeah, he's just like, no, nah, nah. I'm just going to die. not having a bar of it. No, I'm not going to stick around for that. All right, well, look. I, I guess we're agreeing on that. Like, uh, overall, though, I, as, as we mentioned um, at the beginning of this segment, is that like, it, it's a feel-good film. It has those nostalgic elements. There's some good moments in it, just let down by the ending. Yeah, and with good performances all Good around. performances all around, indeed. Right, cool. I think that uh, is a chance for us to wrap up for this one. Um, I just want to quickly say that uh, do stick around, because this is, as I said, the fifth of the nine uh, podcast installments that we are going to produce. Uh, around the Dracula films of Hammer. Um, the next one will be Scars of Dracula, and I will be accompanied by Miles Davis again for that one. But thank you, Meredith, for joining me. Some great thoughts in there, and uh, welcome on board Why, to thank the you. Hammer podcasters. Um, and uh, we'll invite you back, hopefully, again for another one down the track. Lovely. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.